Acts chapter 7, we have encountered this situation with Stephen, who has been fulfilling his ministry, and now he is before the council of the Sadducees, having to defend himself, and we learn that he doesn't really go about defending himself very much. Uh, he actually takes the opportunity to share the gospel. One of the things that he is really exposing, if we could summarize it all, one of the things he's exposing is uh, the, the faith of the Sadducees in a very weak version of God, a very impotent God, a manipulated God, a small God. Stephen is showing his faith in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Joseph, the God of Moses, the God of David and Solomon, the big God, the sovereign God who can work all things according to the counsel of his will. And maybe you just take a moment and think about what that means. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything that happens, he works according to the counsel of his will. Big God. And so we've been describing Stephen as a remarkable witness. We're going to continue reading through this remarkable witness. We're in week two of four dealing with Stephen's speech. We'll remind you how he's systematically working through Jewish history to establish that the only reasonable conclusion is to believe on Jesus Christ. And in doing this, as I said, he exposes the false religion of the Sadducees and their faithless forefathers, some of whom we'll read about today. His speech, furthermore, became sort of a turning point in the gospel to the Gentiles. Last week we covered how Stephen recounted Abraham's faith and how God fulfilled the promise to Abraham by raising up a nation from his seed. And Stephen turns our attention now this week to Joseph, who is a type of Christ. So I want to remind you, if, if you're unfamiliar with that language, a type of somebody who is a foreshadowing, um, somebody who points to a reality, a substance, even though they themselves are just sort of a, a hint, a picture, a, a shadow, a foretaste. So Joseph, in the history of the people of God, becomes a very, very clear, most of you already know this, he becomes a clear type of Christ. As we walk through his part of, this part of his speech, we will see that Joseph becomes the savior of God's people in those days of famine, even when his brothers hated him. Stephen became, or excuse me, Joseph became a savior, a type of Christ. He became the savior to God's people even when his brothers hated him. Let's read here. I'm going to read from verse 1 so we continue with the flow. I might not do that every week. It's a long chapter. Join me, chapter 7, verse 1. I didn't put that in the slides, so you're going to have to adjust. Hear the word of the Lord. 
The high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. God was with him rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to the brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Let's pray. Father, once again, we we ask for your help to understand your word. Help us to be mesmerized with Jesus alone and nothing else. Let us, through him, know you, know you truly, worship you in spirit and truth today and every day. We are totally dependent upon you We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You'll notice that in today's sermon, I am veering a little bit from some of the content of last week. We'll pick that back up when Moses comes around in the rest of the speech. Today, I really want to focus on on the gospel, like the truth of the gospel that is proclaimed here. And you may not readily see it, Just as many people don't open up the Old Testament and readily see Jesus, even though Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, like, hey, everything that was written in the Law and the Prophets is about me. Everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus. Salvation in Jesus is plastered over every page of the Old Testament throughout the history of Israel. And once you respond to the call to believe on him, then you start to see the the wisdom 
and the sovereignty of the one true God, the big God comes rushing through the pages of Scripture. Some of you who have been walking with Jesus a long time, you have had those experiences, those those days where it's like light bulb, Jesus, Old Testament, never thought I would see this, but I see it. Let's just focus on that gospel truth, the salvation of Jesus. Stephen, in these words, expounds the truth of Jesus. And really, if you can accept it, sets forth the truth of Jesus with crystal clarity. I'll give you this theme today. Our rescue comes by the work of the rejected son. Our rescue comes by the work of the rejected son. I'll summarize the parallel immediately right here. Joseph is providentially moved by God into this place of leadership. He's given wisdom to uh, amass all of this grain because God is uh, going to send a famine. All the people of the land now have to turn to Joseph, the distributor of the only thing that can save them, which is the grain. So they must come to Joseph, a type of Jesus, in order to have the sustenance to live and not die. That's the summary of what Stephen is proclaiming right here. This is a summary of many, many chapters in Genesis, if you want to know. Our rescue comes by the work of the rejected son so that the rejected son, Joseph, became a savior to his people, God's people. Jesus is the savior to God's people in a much greater way. I want to give you three gospel realities foreshadowed in Joseph. Three gospel realities foreshadowed in Joseph. I think Stephen is purposefully saying these things, and I'm trying to capture them in these gospel realities today. Number one, one rejected has become the rescuer. It's really a restatement of our theme, but... There it is. One rejected has become the rescuer. You see this in verses 9 and 10. He is rejected by his own. Joseph is rejected. You know the story, right? The coat of many colors. You've been hearing that? If you've been in church since you were a kid, you've, you've probably seen little videos and stuff and coloring books, and you colored the coat of many colors. And all of that activity that, that Jacob did with Joseph, it, it made the brothers jealous. They hated him. They sought to do away with him. And if you follow in the story, you know that they essentially left him for dead. He was sold into slavery, afflicted in so many different ways. But even Stephen here is not focused on that. It's like, uh, you know, the affliction. You know the story, Sadducees. Believers here, you know the story probably pretty well. All the things that he went through. He was rejected by his own, but Stephen is drawing a sharp contrast between the fact that Joseph was blessed with God's presence and providence versus the wicked brothers. 
There's a sharp contrast here because Stephen is trying to say that Jesus is Joseph and you Sadducees are the brothers, the wicked brothers. You want to do away with him, but God has sent him to save you and you won't accept it. But notice how he is first off accompanied by God. This is the focus. The focus, rather than his suffering, God preserved him through all this affliction, showed him favor in setting him before Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. You remember the dreams. You remember that time he spent in prison. He didn't note that. But he put him before Pharaoh. God put him before Pharaoh to interpret dreams and becoming governor over Egypt and even Pharaoh's own household. Stephen here is just reciting all that God did. Linsky writes here, he says, by nullifying. Stephen is reciting all that God did by nullifying what the patriarchs had done and by working out his plans for Abraham's seed. In the case of presenting Jesus, these men would know what Jesus suffered. They were there. They were part of the group that condemned him and saw him hung on a tree. But what they wouldn't admit was that God was with him. You remember what Nicodemus said when he came to him by night because he knew this was career suicide. People know what I'm doing. Hey, Jesus, you have to be from God because nobody can do the things that you do if you weren't from God. And now we learn that Nicodemus was most likely on his way to believing in Jesus. But at the very least, he was, he was willing to be intellectually honest and say that this is from God. I don't have an explanation for this. God is with you. These Sadducees would not admit that God was with Jesus. The God that they supposedly served was backing all the work of the eternal son. He was accompanied by God. But he also had favor and wisdom among man. This characterized Stephen. More importantly, it characterized Jesus. Favor and wisdom among man. Jesus, as you know, grew in stature and in favor with God and man. Wisdom really is, as it's mentioned here, the evidence of God's favor toward the believer. We have now seen Stephen presented multiple times as a brother with wisdom. Wisdom is the evidence of God's favor toward the believer. Joseph had the wisdom and the favor, but his brothers were jealous. Jesus had the wisdom and the favor. The religious leaders were jealous. They left him for dead they would have killed Joseph. You remember the story? They would have killed him had not one brother, Reuben, said, no, let's throw him in the pit. And he had a plan to go get him out later. They would have killed Joseph too. Pole Hill says, God was decidedly not with the jealous brothers. God is decidedly with Jesus and Stephen and he is decidedly not with these unbelieving Sadducees. And in the bigger picture, you see 
In the days of Joseph, God was setting up for the rescue of his people, the preservation of the kingly line that would come. Even when they were working against him. Do you remember what? Do you remember what the Bible says? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. In the case of Jesus, he was constantly foreshadowing the cross. In addition to all of the scriptures that show us the cross, Jesus himself was among his followers. And how many times, those of you who have been in the Mark study on on Tuesday morning, how many times did he try to tell them the gospel? Hey, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be accused. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to rise on the third day. And they're like, what? Let's talk about something else. What are you even saying, Jesus? They don't want to hear that. Even when they worked against him, when they didn't understand, Jesus was constantly foreshadowing the salvation that was to come. And Joseph was one of those signposts. One rejected has become the rescuer. I should say now today, If you're a lover of illustrations, today's sermon is not for you. We're just going to walk through this. Number two, second gospel reality. One's famished. One's famished have come to faith. One's famished. Now you recall one of the dreams that Joseph interpreted well, both of the dreams interpreted, prophesied seven years of famine in the whole land. So they had time to gather up and amass all this grain. And then they knew this famine was coming. Joseph knew because the Lord revealed this to him in Pharaoh's dreams. And we read in the text here, Stephen's words, our fathers could find no food. So the patriarchs were herdsmen needing regular food and water, not only for themselves, but for their families and for all of their livestock. So when the famine was full swing, Egypt's full storehouses of grain were due to Joseph's wise leadership. I would ask you, though, and I'm jumping really hard on application, quick to application here, do you immediately see the gospel reality of being famished? They were famished. They had to find food. And you know what it's like when you're hungry. Maybe maybe us Americans, we don't know. What's real hunger? We don't know that. And that's a shame. In many ways, you see what God would show us spiritually through something physical. But these famished have come to faith. So I would ask you, have you come to the point where you realized you were famished? I need need spiritual food. I need need spiritual drink. And you've been to the, the buffets of the world, right? Everything you could possibly want set before you. Anything you want to try, every experience, every ideology, every idol, 
every philosophy, it's before you. And, and we live in a, in, a, in a time in our society where it is like a, it's, it's a virtue to want to know about all the things that are out there in the world. Well, how can I know the truth if, man, there's just so much out there. I need to go study all of this stuff. And I would tell you, I would encourage you today, if you have found the truth, then you can stop looking. But the fact is, if you have not arrived at the truth of Jesus, then you are still yet to discover that you are famished and you're desperate. You're clinging to the lies of the world, the false gods of the world, the distractions of the world, the escapes of the world, the purposes that disappear, the, the, the meaning, the meaning that in the end is nothing. Think about all the people that we watch on TV and social media giving themselves to campaigns that in the end are nothing. It's their chosen remedy for the world, whether it's trees or, or whales or political agendas or whatever, whether it's sexual revolution. In the end, it will be nothing. It will be trampled underfoot by the sun. So if you you're willing to accept it, you're famished. And you have to be famished. You have to realize your need, your desperate need before you're going to come to faith. You know what Jesus says? I am true food and true drink. I am the well that gives that eternal water, that living water. Always satisfying water. They were famished. And they ended up making two visits. They ended up making two visits. And you, you, you may remember the bit of scheming that Joseph had to do to make sure they come back. And this time with their father. Commentators note, <laughs> so good. <laughs> Commentators note, this seems like an insignificant detail that Stephen included. Yet in it we see something remarkable. Stephen had the wherewithal to grasp the significance of two visits. May we today grasp the significance of two visits. Two visits means there was a first visit, and then later there was a second visit. And on the first visit, they didn't know who he was. They encountered him. They saw his face, but they didn't know who he was. They heard him talk, 
They, they watched him work, but they didn't know who he was. They weren't looking for him. They didn't realize they needed him. So they didn't know who he was. The brothers didn't recognize the one they threw in the pit. The Sadducees wouldn't acknowledge the one they nailed to a cross. They didn't know who he was. They left him for dead. He was old news. They didn't know who he was. But his memory wouldn't leave. His legacy wouldn't stop. His people believe. His servants testify. The church expands. The gospel saves. And wouldn't you know it, wouldn't God do it that there was a second visit? And at the second visit, would they recognize him? Would they know him? On that second visit, God be praised. Every eye will see him. There will be no question, all the attention on him, no escape from him. Vengeance robed up on him, his mouth a sword, his eyes fire. And he is called the word of God. He is called the king of kings and Lord of lords. They wouldn't accept who he was. They didn't know who he was on the first visit. They knew who he was on the second one. You can rest assured. The Sadducees will know who he is on visit number two. So, question... Will you? Will you acknowledge who he is before the second visit? Will you acknowledge the Lord Jesus before he comes again? Those that recognize him before he comes again, get this, are known by the king. You see how, you see how they, they, they came to understand who Joseph was. He revealed himself to them, and then he takes them to the king. And there's a picture in this. Those that know Jesus know God. There's a picture in this. Known to the king, known by God. What else can we say? We, we could talk for hours, days on all that we have in him. If you will recognize him before he comes again, if you will surrender to him before he comes again, you will be welcomed into the beloved. Beloved, You will, you will be covered in grace. You'll be adopted into the family, secure in salvation, rescued from sin, citizens of the kingdom, loved forever, alive forever, victorious forever, rejoicing forever. And, and can we say, Say on this week, free forever. Free forever. What do you do now? What well, has something to do with being famished, right? It has something to do with being famished. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the rich. I didn't come to call the people who are full. I didn't come to call 
The people who are well? Who did he come to call? The hungry. The hungry. The famished. So maybe there's somebody who would recognize I've tried everything in the world that I can get my hands on and I know I've got nothing and I need him. I need him now. I came to call, he says, the sick. They're the ones that need the doctor. I came to call the poor. I came to call the hungry, the famished. And I'll submit to you, if you still think you need to earn God's favor today, if you're still sort of working toward whatever, it, whatever you imagine it feels like to be forgiven by God or okay with him or on good terms or whatever, then you are the full, the well, and the rich in your own eyes. Because you're going to perpetually believe that you got something to offer. And salvation cannot be yours. what Jesus says. But if you will confess today that you're hungry, you're famished, you're sick, you're poor, you're blind, you're lame, you are only pitiable in the sight of God. Only pitiable. The salvation can be yours. And you can come to faith. One rejected has become the rescuer. One's famished have come to faith. Oh my goodness, two visits. Two visits. Oh my goodness. Thirdly, third gospel reality. Once desperate believers. We have been delivered. Once desperate, we have been delivered. See that in the last couple of verses. All the events in the life of Joseph and the outplaying of that occasion allows Jacob's whole family, God's people, to move to Egypt in fulfillment of God's word to Abraham as we read in verse 6 that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. We know from these verses that Jacob, and we know from history, and Joseph, the brothers, they completed their lives in Egypt. Yeah, one commentator reminds us that just like Abraham, their faith in the promise of God remains. How do we know that? They sojourned in Egypt, but their home was the promised land. So they were buried there. So they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver. Joseph actually was embalmed in Egypt, only later to be taken back and placed in the same tomb. So he laid with his fathers and family of brothers 
Here's what we can say on this. If you come to faith in Jesus, you can rest assured that the promises of God in him are brought to their yes and amen. You may recall Paul wrote to the Corinthians to tell them all the promises of God in Jesus are yes and amen. Not only will you be able to thrive in faith during the worst circumstances of your life like Joseph, you'll be able to witness remarkably to the beauty and the majesty of the Lord Jesus just like Stephen. And when your final breath comes, you'll find your final rest in the land of promise. Indeed, you'll have your home in heaven to be made forever in the new heavens and new earth. Oh, if I say anything else, I feel like I'm just going to take your minds off the gospel. So let's respond to the gospel. Before coming to a place of faith and rescue from your famine, your famine, I hope you sit down to lunch today and you're like, man, I'm so thankful that God showed me my desperation in the midst of so much wealth. In the, the midst of so much independence. Think about that on Independence Day. You're not independent. You are totally dependent upon God. Before coming to that place of rest and rescue from famine, Jacob and the brothers first needed to realize their desperation. And again, it's not hard to do when there's no food and there is no water. Yet today, might you examine the state of your souls and realize that the, the wells you've been drinking from don't hold water. They're broken cisterns that leave you empty. Will you recognize, will you discover that maybe your lack of contentment, your lack of satisfaction is from feasting at the tables of the world, human wisdom, which is folly, and imbibing the pleasures of the world, the pleasures of sin. When you close your eyes at night, when you look in the mirror in the morning, can you truly say, I have my rest in Christ? I am satisfied in Christ. I am confident in him. Some are not yet desperate enough. And I would say the best thing that, ha that can happen to you is God makes you desperate. But who would say in their desperation, what must I do to be saved? 
what must I do to be saved? It would be a travesty to walk out the door rejecting the Lord Jesus, the Son who is our rescue, and gambling eternity on your next breath or your next trip down 305 or your next meal or your next night of sleep. Turn from your sin, place your faith in Jesus once and for all. And on the trustworthy word of God, I can declare to you with full assurance that if you do that today, you have salvation. Come to him. Come to him. I'll be available to pray with you, to counsel you this morning as we sing together. Father, Father, we get to sort of bat.